on our first day of opening up Exchange Street, um, like any new opening, it was kind of crazy and kind of nuts. And halfway through our day, this was actually Halloween, so five years ago today, um, our fryer broke. Uh, and so we were kind of scrambling, getting donuts from Park Avenue to, and frying them over there to bring them over to Exchange um, and trying to decide what we were going to do. Uh, for the next day, uh, on that short of notice, the only one we were able to find was in Boston. Um, so we, uh, went down to Boston in my pickup truck, uh, loaded up a fryer, uh, drove back, got back into Portland, maybe nine ish at night and it was raining and I'm trying to lift it over the threshold and my foot slipped out from under me and the fryer came down on my ankle and crushed every bone in my right ankle. I'm not a hundred percent certain that the Holy Donut would be here today if that didn't happen laying me up like that. I couldn't make donuts and I couldn't um, serve donuts. So I really dove into financials uh, of the company and which I hadn't done yet to that point. We were bleeding cash from every orifice. Um, it was dire uh, at that point in time. It was, it was really, um, you know, if we don't tighten this up right now, we may not make it another month. That fall, that winter, that spring was all about putting financial systems in place uh, and tightening things. Um, getting a handbook in place, um, you know, really creating and developing a culture of accountability um, and, and making sure everyone's doing their part in their job. And uh, I'm not certain I, I would have been forced to take a step back um, and, and look at the, you know, the guts of the business had that not happened. So in retrospect, I think we're pretty fortunate. Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I speak with Jeff Buckwalter, CEO of The Holy Donut, a Portland, Maine-based retail and wholesale donut company whose hand-cut, hand-glazed potato donuts have developed a crazed following both locally and beyond. With demand far exceeding supply for his donuts and persistent inquiries for expansion and even franchising, Jeff talks about his efforts to build the infrastructure necessary to support a growing company, the value of trust and accountability in developing his workforce, and the importance of conflict in a healthy organization. Jeff Bookwalter, CEO of Holy Donut. Thanks a lot for being on the Big Time Small Business Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So uh, Holy Donut, for the local listeners, is going to need no introduction. Um, you guys have a devout following here in town. Uh, but for those that don't know what or who Holy Donut is, can you give us the quick elevator pitch? Yeah, the Holy Donut, we are a somewhat small family-owned uh, Maine Potato Donut Company uh, here in Portland, Maine. Uh, we have three locations, two in Portland, one in Scarborough. Uh, and we make what we believe are the best potato donuts in the world from scratch every day. I think a lot of people would agree that mm -hmm. they are the best, definitely not just in Maine, the best donuts, period, potato or otherwise. 
So let's go to the let's go to the the genesis of it. I think a potato donut for those that haven't tried a holy donut, haven't had that revelatory experience, are saying that sounds weird. So why a potato donut? What is it about a potato donut? Um, potato donut is really going to be a bit more moist and a bit more dense, kind of like the idea behind potato bread. Um, it's going to give it a different mouthfeel. It's going to be a little bit more substantial, um, and it really maintains its moisture very well. Uh, and it's actually an old Northern Maine recipe that our founder, uh, Lee Kellis, uh, found uh, and kind of tweaked and made her own a little bit, and she struck gold. Sure. So uh, I think that's that opens the door to a, a topic that I definitely want to touch on. Lee is your sister-in-law. Correct. So there's two things I want to talk about then. One is is your entrance into the business Yeah. Um, and, and your role. Mm-hmm. Um, but then two is to talk about that that family dynamic Mm. Uh, and how it's influenced Holy Donut, its growth, mm. its evolution, its character. Um, I entered the Holy Donut in the fall of 2013. Um, I'd spent a dozen or so years as a, a regional marketing director for a, a hotel and timeshare company uh, and did that um, except for about a dozen years. And uh, it had me traveling quite a bit. Um, it was a pressure cooker of an industry, um, sales marketing wise. Um, and I just really ultimately wasn't happy. I knew that really wasn't where I was going to hang my hat. Um, but it did provide a, a good living for my family and allowed for my wife to stay home with our kids when she, when they were young. And, um, so that was a, a, a trade off that in retrospect, it was worth it. Um, but I was unhappy in my career and as Park Avenue started to get traction, um, my father-in-law uh, would frequently say, you know, we're going to, we're going to get you into this business. I said, oh, okay. Um, but with, you know, a mortgage and three kids and, um, you know, all that, it was, it wasn't financially prudent uh, or possible for me to come into the business with one location. Um, so as, as Lee and he began to have an appetite for a second location, um, then the, the conversations, you know, grew in earnest in terms of um, me coming on board into the business and helping them. Uh, from a business and a structure standpoint and from a financial standpoint, um, really, um, you know, running it like a business. Um, and so uh, in 2013, September, um, I quit my job and um, we opened up Exchange Street two months later and, you know, kind of jumped in with both feet. And uh, well, really just one foot though, right? Really? <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting uh, story there. Um, on our first day of opening up Exchange Street, um, like any new opening, it was kind of crazy and kind of nuts. And halfway through our day, this was actually Halloween. So five years ago today, um, our fryer broke. Uh, and so we were kind of scrambling, getting donuts from Park Avenue to, and frying them over there to bring them over to exchange, um, and trying to decide what we were going to do, uh, for the next day, uh, on that short of notice, the only one we were able to find was in Boston. Um, so we, uh, went down to Boston in my pickup truck, uh, loaded up a fryer, uh, drove back, got back into Portland, maybe nine ish at night and it was raining and I'm trying to lift it over the threshold and my foot slipped out from under me and the fryer came down on my ankle and crushed every bone in my right ankle. Uh, I wasn't walking on it until like end of January. Um, so November, December, January were rough months. Um, I had reconstructive surgery. I have uh, 11 screws and a titanium plate that are still kicking around in my ankle. Um, talk about a labor of love. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it's very interesting in that regard in that I'm not a hundred percent certain that the Holy Donut would be here today if that didn't happen. 
and you're talking about the accident. Yes, breaking your ankle. Why yes, because you, oh, yeah, it was. Why do you say um, that? It was dive, you know, because opening that store was just diving in every every day, you know, the 12, 16 hour days and just making donuts and selling donuts. But what what that what had happened is that laying me up like that, I couldn't make donuts and I couldn't um, serve donuts. So I really dove into financials uh, of the company and which I hadn't done yet to that point. Um, and it was a shoebox business. You know, there was no P&Ls. There was no GL codes. It was a checkbook company. Um, and and we were, you know, we weren't profitable. Um, you know, we were just kind of treading water, breaking even. Um, and really, you know, having to set up the accounting systems and all the general ledger codes and all that to really understand where we were bleeding. Um, I think a lot of small companies bleed to death and don't even ever know where they were injured. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the situation that I think we, we kind of saw ourselves in. Uh, so had that not happened, had I just toiled away for another few months, we 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 I think could have easily gone bankrupt. Wow. Um and then really understood where we were losing losing our our shirt. Yeah. Um and that was an ingredient cost, labor costs, employees filling out their own time cards, and just they were just we were bleeding cash from every orifice. Yeah. Um it was dire uh, at that point in time. It was it was really um, you know, if we don't tighten this up right now, we may not make it another month or two. Um, you know our overage could zap our profitability one day if we're not watching uh, and forecasting properly. Um, pro days profits can go out the window pretty quickly. That fall, that winter, that spring was all about putting financial systems in place uh, and tightening things, um, getting a handbook in place, um, you know, really creating and developing a culture of accountability um, and, and making sure everyone's doing their part in their job. And uh, I'm not certain I, I would have been forced to, take a step back um, and look at the, you know, the guts of the business had that not happened. So in retrospect, I think we're pretty fortunate. So in time, we just, you know, peeled back the onion and found some kind of ugly things that we had to address. And, you know, we were selling donuts. We were underselling this product for a long time um, and selling our wholesale product at a loss. Once we got and dove into what it really cost us to make a donut, um, that was a pretty scary number. Um, and so that, that kind of smacked us in the face and you couldn't really do anything about it other than because you weren't what you weren't recovering overhead, um, we weren't for donut basis or you weren't even covering, we weren't even cost. covering that. I mean, I think initially it's either dollar 50 or dollar 75, um, or with the first retail, uh, pricing point, uh, was for the donut and it was about almost a dollar 30 to make it. Oof. So, um, it was profit margin. scary, right? And we were yeah. selling, you know, wholesale donuts for 80 cents, <laughs> you know, and that, but the, the challenge there was in scaling it, mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, Lee took a lot, well, this is what it cost me to make it in my kitchen, but now you, you acquire overhead and you have employees and you have all these things. And it just, that, that changed and that shift didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but we caught it in time. Um, and we were able to make those adjustments and those were, kind of the, the storming years uh, in, in the business, those first couple of years of really putting processes, putting procedures in place, putting a manual in place. And, you know, it felt, you know, it was a very, you know, loosey-goosey business and people liked that feel and that vibe. Um, but also in that environment, you know, there was a lack of accountability. And so sometimes people get really comfortable in that environment. Um, and so the person who's maybe shifting or changing that's not going to be the most popular guy in the block and that's okay. Um, but it's, you know, when, when your family's livelihood's on the line, you do whatever it takes. Sure. Um, and so there was some, some tough decisions that had to be made. Some personnel didn't want to operate and, 
and that environment uh, of accountability and increased efficiency. Um, and so we had to part ways with some people who were really good people, but they just didn't feel like they wanted to be there in that new environment um, where maybe there's not a spotlight or a microscope on, but, you know, without a job description, it's easy to kind of push off accountability. And so sure. job descriptions first, then an employee handbook and all that kind of felt corporate a little bit to, to a lot of people. And so part of my sale I needed to do was to, you know, sell them on how that's going to make them a happier, more productive employee. Sure. Right. And so, yeah, I don't like that. That feels corporate, but you also don't like when you come in and so-and-so didn't do their job and now you have to do their, their part for them. Mm -hmm. You don't like that. So I'm going to help solve that part of that problem for you. Um, everyone's going to be accountable for doing what's on their plate. Um, so you, you hit, you just hit on a topic that I was, you, you beat me to it. I was going to go there. Um, cause it's something that I've heard as well is that corporate, when you, what you're talking about is, is business process, business infrastructure, mm. which in the world of small business is, is probably, I would argue the limiting factor to growth. Mm. It's not the core product. In fact, I know plenty of people would buy holy donuts at two X the demand, three X the demand. I mean, I was just at a conference last night with Lee, your sister-in-law who's mm. saying, we say no more than we say yes. It's true. So corporatizing, mm. uh, it's something I hear a lot when we get involved with a company and we start talking about this infrastructure. Mm. It's, some, it's one of the most common backlashes that we get as well. How do you, more broadly, how do you strike that balance of being corporate, which allows you to scale, which is, doesn't mean that you're gonna just you know take over the world and lose your values. It means you can do more of the good stuff, right? Uh, it's another thing mm. that we talked about last night mm. is the more we make, and we are a for-profit company and we mm -hmm. make money so we can do more good. Absolutely. Um, so how do you strike that balance of corporate while maintaining values? And more importantly, potentially, how do you communicate that internally so people buy in? That's, you know, that, that's, I think, one of the more challenging um, responsibilities that Lee and I have uh, in, in the company. And I think that that pitch evolves over time, right? As, as I gain acumen and I gain comfort in my role, um, and it depends upon your audience. Uh, you know, every person's probably got to hear that a little bit differently. You know, I use that, that analogy of just, you know, somebody else doing their job properly before you. Um, and so I think corporate is just, it's the, it's the awful C word, right? In small business and, and that, but it, 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 it all depends on how you frame that, right? You can say, we want to be more organized, right? We want to have less chaos. We want to have more predictability. We want more job security, that's awesome. All those things come when you have that corporate, a little bit of that corporateiness, and how much is is enough, right? And I think that's the the interesting balance that we'll probably always be trying to to, to find the right mix of. Um, we don't want it to be so much so corporate that we lose the soul of our business um, as we try to scale this thing. Um, but also, we're I think you're fooling yourself if you feel like you can really grow and scale a business without some of that corporateiness. Um, you know, there's a reason that as you get up to 50 employer, you, you, your employee base grows, you have to have some certain things in place. You have to have effective HR mechanisms in place. You have to have non-disclosure agreements. You have to have non-competes. You have to, you know, you're protecting what it is that you're building here. And if you don't, you, you're, you're foolish. Uh, you know, all of our lives are on the line. Um, and our job is to make sure this is here for current employees, future employees, hopefully our kids. For sure. So another thing that um, is associated with the, the ugly C word, the corporate, mm -hmm. uh, one, uh, to your point, is organization and systemizing things. It sort of feels like it's ripping away some of the organic mm. chaos that some people see as a positive. It's, it's, the, it's the sort of the culture. 
-hmm. but growth is another one uh, mm -hmm. that I have had experience with too is, um, and, and Mary Ellen talked about it when talking about uh, the growth of Coffee by Design, opening up new locations. And now all of a sudden you're not just the one shop, which has a very ethereal sort of feeling to it. Now you have three shops and you guys have a wholesale business. Um, how has that impacted the sort of corporate feel uh, of Holy Donut and have you managed that internally? That's really challenging. And I think where that really came to a head was when we opened up Scarborough. Uh, Scarborough was, was a different feel type of a location for us as the old Tim Hortons at the corner of Haggis and Route 1 in Scarborough, where that was... How much um, heat did you get for going into an old Tim's? Um, uh, not a lot. I mean, a funny really? story is Lee, that... Last night, Lee said point blank, Holy Donut is the anti-Dunkin' Donuts. We are the Tim, anti. And, that's, and I was, Tim's is the Canadian Dunkin' Donuts. So I'm going to make a little bit of a parallel there. Well, we did. And, and that was one of the, one of the funny things is, is that uh, that location sat for a while. I looked at it and, and said, ah, no, and kind of came back around to it. And, and Alan, you know, God bless him. He just wants a hundred of these things. Right. Um, he's since passed, unfortunately, but, um, but Lee wouldn't even walk into the building. Um, when we went, when I went over to show it to her, she because just, it was an old Tim Hortons, because it was an old Tim yeah. Hortons, because it was corporate feel. And mm -hmm. so, um, but I think that was one of our first initial challenges was how do we get the stale corporateness out of that location? And is our culture strong enough to overcome that? Um, I, I believe that the answer to that is yes, uh, but I suppose that that's still not uh, fully answered yet. Um, that was really hard. Um, that larger location, Route One exposure. It's not this little hole in the wall where, you know, Alan and Lee and myself were there with hammers and nails and, and paint buckets trying to, to pretty it up on the cheap. Um, we actually had the infrastructure and, and the capital to, I say, do it right in that we, you know, really laid out the space with, with greater efficiencies. And we brought uh, the Manufacturing Extension Partnership in there and they helped us lay it out for uh, workflow and, and all of those things, which were a bit foreign to us at that time. Um, but I think Lee did a masterful job in terms of, the decor of the building, uh, the exterior paint. Um, and I think the rest of our company did a great job in just extending genuine kindness to, to our customer base and not, you know, getting too big for our britches. We're still this little small family business. Um, and I think that's, you know, that image that you project is really about how you run your business and how you treat your people. Um, and hopefully we're continuing to do a good job at that. So I know growth is something that you're thinking about right now. It's very timely. So can you talk about sort of the, the status today, how you think about growth, the opportunities facing you, and how do you mm. sort of weigh the risk reward, the pros, cons uh, mm. of sort of tackling that growth? Because as we've already mentioned, I think it's pretty obvious the demand is there. It's just a question of mm. how do you tackle it? We, um, if you want to at all. Yeah. I mean, to, to Lee's point um, the other day is that we, we say no a lot. Um, we have lots of people knocking on our doors for franchises and for new locations and you know, that's interesting and that's cool. And Boston comes knocking or, you know, Faneuil Hall, all those types of things. Um, but where I think we've done a really good job at is really staying disciplined um, and not outpacing our, our human resources and infrastructure. Uh, we understand, uh, I think, pretty well where we're still at in the grand scheme of things and where our work lives. Um, for us to still, you know, be able to work on our platform and our base and our structure to accommodate whatever chunks of growth we choose to bite off here in the near future. Um, so we do a lot of development with our staff and our employees and our managers. Um, we are committed to, you know, at least, I think this year we're doing 16 different um, 
management and development training sessions with all of our management staff. Um, and that's really, I think, our, our ongoing challenge. I think Lee and I both envision us having more locations in the future, and we certainly do. Um, but the how uh, is something that we're, we're really focused on. We, you know, on some level there, there's always going to be trade-offs uh, as you scale a uh, company. Um, and really trying to make good sound decisions on what trade-offs are fair ones to make um, and which ones can we never, ever step on. Um, as we start to grow and scale the business, um, that secret sauce has to always be in play. Um, and so our part of our work right now is really determining, um, and listening more, I guess they listening more to our customers, but more formally polling our customers, uh, to, for them to, to help us understand exactly what they love about us and, and, and make sure that what we believe is, is vital, um, uh, to the core of our business is, is, is what our customers are seeing as well. Um, I think, you know, as we go down this road, um, we're going to find some things that maybe we've been hung up on, like, oh, this is critical. And our customers like, yeah, we don't care about that, but we care about this over here. Don't ever not do this. Um, and so as we've, you know, looked, you know, what part of our business is a very labor intensive business, you know, in a busy summer weekend, we're still going to cut 15,000 donuts by hand between our three shops. And that's, that's challenging um, to manage that metric and that labor with, you know, you know, maybe 25, 30 different production people across three shops, um, all having to hit their numbers in order for this to be a profitable venture. Um, that's terribly challenging to do, particularly in this labor market. That's as razor thin as I've ever seen it. Um, and so we have a lot of companies that, that come to us and tell us, you know, you need to change your formula. Uh, one of our challenges in scaling this product is that our dough is, is pretty unique um, and it doesn't behave well in most any traditional donut cutting equipment that's, you know, less than six figures. Um, you know, beyond that, you can get into to hoppers and pressurized, you know, extrusion and all of those types of things, um, which we're not there yet. Um, but that's, you know, we, we've, we've held firm to that. We're like, nope, we're, we're not changing what got us here. Yeah. So uh, you've mentioned that, uh, you know, you're saying no, and I think that's a very powerful word to come up on. That's also come up on this podcast before. It's very hard for an entrepreneur to say no, mm. um, but it's also quite essential to say no. You probably have to say no more than you say yes, uh, because if you're successful, that's going to lead to a lot of inquiries and that's going to lead to a lot of areas of people trying to pull you into tangential areas. And if you do too much of that, mm. you're going to lose what you had in the first place. Um, so what are you, what are you going to be looking for to know that you got to a point where you can take on that next bit of growth, right? Because I, I mean, I'm assuming here, or I'm, I'm talking about a growth of sort of step level change growth, not mm -hmm. the organic growth of the Scarborough location, pumping out you know, incrementally more donuts in a day. It's a new location or the monstrous decision of going franchise or what bringing on, you know, who to bring on growth equity and a, and a partner to go national or, you know, something crazy like that. What are you going to be looking at to say, all right, this is, this is, we've gotten to a point where the platform, you talked about the platform before, is, is strong enough or built out enough that we can take on that next increment. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one of, I think one of my biggest challenges is a determining, I think if you wait till you're ready, it's kind of like having kids, you'll never have them. Um, but when are you ready enough? Um, and for me, it, it's looking at the growth uh, of our managers, uh, the growth of our profitability, growth of our predictability um, in terms of all of our processes. I have to see progress, growth, and consistency in those areas. Um, and I also need that that next, that bench strength to develop. Um, 
so that we can continue to, to really feed that management team from within. Um, we've been super lucky uh, at this point in time to have the capital for future growth. Um, but, you know, none of that matters if I don't have the, the human infrastructure to, to manage those things. So for me, it's the development of our management team um, and the right locations, and the right opportunities and the right business partners that surface along the way. Um, I think a good coach and a good CEO is always pushing, um, but a, the, the, how far is too far? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody needs to live just north of their comfort zone. Um, and, you know, I can certainly admit that I've been guilty of pushing right? people maybe a little bit too far beyond it. Um, but I think, you know, for, for Liam and certainly for myself, um, we are, are terribly invested in making sure that this company fulfills its potential. And it's really not about donuts. Uh, the donuts are the conduit. Um, you know, we, we are, we have a lot that we can bring to the communities that we do business in. We have a lot of opportunities that we can bring for our budding managers and our staff. Um, being able to see somebody who was maybe a bit down on their luck when they came to work for us, who's now maybe occupying a, a supervisor or a manager role. Um, that's why we do this. Um, and if we can do that and be that type of a destination, then the more of these opportunities for growth, whether that's more locations, whether it's uh, for more profitability or, or really making those decisions on where we're going to take this company become a little bit more evident. But the, the biggest I think factor that I look at is, are we ready personnel wise? Um, you know, it's you know, opening up a new store. Great. You know, that may cost X amount of money to go do that. We do the site selection. We pick the right location. Uh, but if I don't have a good leader in place, that that place will not be profitable and it won't achieve its potential. In the last couple of years, um, we've seen tremendous growth and profitability as we've made refinements and made better business decisions. Um, but I think it's also we've been, you know, we've kind of achieved a little bit of a false EBITDA in that, you know, the, the, the number is great. But is that a sustainable number um, relative to, to other people in our industry? Um, and so I think I, I fell in the trap of maybe trying to do too much with too little uh, in terms of human resources. Um, and I wasn't making enough investments in, in training in my management staff. Um, so all of that was, you know, relatively glaring. And I had to swallow hard and be like, look, that's, that's a mistake. Um, so making sure that, you know, a, you know, we had to make sure we're adjusting pay plans to make sure we're paying not only fairly, but we like to pay five to ten percent better than any competitor in that similar field. Um, I, I don't want my management staff dealing with bottom of the barrel um, candidates or employees. Um, so we do pay a bit more, but we ask for a bit more. Um, so I really had to. And Vistage was fantastic in terms of helping me uh, identify that. You know, yeah, that's great, but how long can you work eighty hours a week? You know, how long can you be everywhere? You can't, right? So if you're really going to scale this thing. Uh, you better start investing, you know, some of that capital that you're saving right now um, into managers, leaders, and extra layers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from an accounting and HR standpoint, um, we've made some great strides there. Um, and so now a, a training manager slash area manager uh, that will allow my operations manager to do more of his job, which will allow me to do more of my job. Uh, and so I can work where I'm the most valuable uh, in the organization. So it's just, you know, opening my eyes a little bit in terms of what it really means to, to run a company of this size and to grow it to the size that, that, that Lee and I both believe it can achieve. And is that hard? Because what, what you're essentially talking about is, is hiring yourself out of certain roles, replacing 100%. yourself and delegating. Our job I've, is to start things and hand them off, yep. start them and hand them off. Um, and that requires a lot of trust, to be very honest. And I think that's something that I struggle with. I think probably everybody does. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to be limited 
uh, in terms of how much you can grow an organization. And so my job is really to get things done through others. Um, what not, happens when they mess up? Pardon me? What happens when they mess up? That's well, what I get told all the That's the trade-off, time. right? Yeah. No one's perfect. And so you can either cap yourself in terms of what you're going to do in your business, or you can extend trust, right? And when you extend trust, you're going to get disappointed sometimes. That's just the way of it. But I think that's kind of the price sometimes. of growth, right? And so now, you know, you develop that person and now all of a sudden they can run with that thing, right? And we check in, we monitor and we, we, we manage. Um, but if, if you're not willing to let things go, you're, you're, I, I don't believe you can really grow an organization. No, I totally agree. I was just leading you there. <laughs> I think uh, I talk, you talk about this a lot and you see this a lot in the world of small businesses is, is it definitely the more hats an owner, operator, CEO wears, the, the higher margins are going to be, right? Because they're taking on a bunch of different roles, right. but they're, it's also the restrictor plate for their company that 100%. they can't, there's only 24 hours in a day. And at some point mm-hmm. they're going to want some balance in their life mm-hmm. and they're going to get some burnout. Uh, or if it's a trust thing, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be able to trust anyone. Um, so certainly you can be disappointed, but I think you uh, conversely can also be quite surprised. 100%. I, mean, I think that's one of the things that I, I love the most in my role is being able to hand something off to somebody and see them do it better than I could do it. Um, that's awesome. Um, and, and just the, by virtue of doing that, what does that tell them on how much you trust them? Um, and then when you, once you give away trust to somebody and they believe that, that you, you trust them to do that job, I think provide you made good decision on that person that magic can happen there. Yep. So uh, throughout the conversation thus far, you've talked a lot about um, process and you referenced metrics. Um, and last night uh, when I was listening to the lead talk, she mentioned that you are uh, the, the business guy. Um, so what do you, when, when you want to get a quick look at Holy Donut, what are you looking at to see the health of the company? Maybe it's quantitative, maybe it's qualitative, maybe it's a mixture of both. But you mm-hmm. know, when you're looking to sort of take stock mm-hmm. uh, of the company, what are you looking at? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, obviously, the P and L and the balance sheet, you know, are going to tell the the ultimate story, and that, that's you know, I think the dashboard um, to run your business. But you know, looking at those those barometric reports, so those three, four, five, six reports that. If those things are right, most everything is pretty right in the business, whether that's food costs, labor costs, relative to revenue, um, looking at, you know, over looking at, you know, average tickets, looking at number of bodies and um, number of transactions uh, each store is doing on a daily basis. Um, and that is also the feel thing, you know, taking the temperature of your staff. Um, it's one thing to maybe get great metrics, but if it's at the cost of morale, uh, that's that's not a fair trade-off to make. Um and so it's so that a, could be another metric, right? I mean, you you've you referenced turnover, so that's clearly mm-hmm. a metric you're looking at. Correct. Um, yeah, I mean, if we have excessive turnover in a location, then the first place they have to look is management. Um, you know, or is there poor training in place? We've already established that we we kind of stink at training, to be very honest. Um, and also, you know, we have a uh, you know a lot of my time outside of managing metrics is really coaching and developing our our young managers. Uh, we have a, a bullpen full of green managers uh, for the most part. Um, and they're going to, to your point earlier, they're going to make mistakes. Um, but, you know, I guess try to keep them within bumpers, right? Within these bumpers, you can go ahead and skin your knee and fall down and we'll pick you back up. Um, but they just can't make any big mistakes. So it just, you know, for me, it's it's monitoring our financials. It took us quite um, a long time to be able to close our books every two weeks. Um, so in every two weeks, every two weeks, uh, oh, we finally so got there this year. Close. We do a mid month close. Um, and just, you know, there were in the first couple of years, once we got our accounting system up, I think we were 
closing four months in arrear. You know, it was it was after the fact accounting, um, which is just obviously not good. Um, so I, I have to take my hat off to our, our accountant and my office manager, Lauren. Um, I, I, I pushed on them really hard. Um, uh, prior to opening up Scarborough, um, we were still maybe two months in arrears before we were closing a month. Um, and that just, you know, left us too vulnerable. So I've, I've been pushing and pushing that, you know, we're going to, we're going to close every two weeks and then the next step is going to be a weekly snapshot. Um, so that we know exactly where we're at and we can understand financially where we're at before we go make any big weighty business decisions. Um, it's critical. Yeah, no question. Mid-month close. I think all, all of our portfolio companies are screaming right now, please not, not, mm -hmm. not us, not us. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's incredible. And, and for, for something with such a high velocity that you guys have, I, I understand mm -hmm. the benefit for sure. Yeah, no, you, you got it. I mean, you have to know where we're at um, at all times financially. Yep. Um, so you can get in front of trends before they come too bad. How about um, one thing that's that's very top of mind internally here when I talk to business owners uh, and they're talking about their business is uh, is operational in addition to financial data mm -hmm. and and leveraging technology uh, mm -hmm. in a way to help them sort of understand their business better because mm -hmm. I would argue that everything that happens in a business will impact a financial statement in some way. Um, so increased turnover will lead to um, probably lower productivity for employees. Uh, so if you, if you know how to look, you know, it, you know, it will come out somewhere, but it might not necessarily be called out explicitly and it might be overshadowed or drowned out or covered up by some other factor that's also impacting a PL or a balance sheet. Um, so operational data is, is sort of a leading indicator of financial data. So, um, to what extent have you implemented that at Holy Donuts? What extent do you, do you look at that, um, as sort of part of your dashboard of the health of Holy Donut. So yes, our POS system is is actually one of the things we're going to be migrating away from. Uh, it's not a great POS system. I'm not going to I'm not going to bash them here on here. But uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, um, we need uh, not we our three different systems don't talk to each other. And right. Three, so whether that's payroll, are... whether it's accounting, whether it's our POS system, yeah. we have to do a lot of manual jiggering to kind of get all these things to work and, mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, and talk to one another. Um, so that's our next step, uh, this fall, um, in winter, uh, is to find a POS system that will work with us uh, in our current state. And also, um, as we continue to grow, um, but yes, you know, we look at I mean, one of the things, um, one of the trade-offs we've had to make, at least with our current POS system, um, is not knowing exactly what, how many of every flavor that we sell through the POS system. Um, and one of the reasons uh, for that is just, you know, and it's a, it's a first world problem, but in the summer, our lines, you know, if, you know, in a two dozen order, if they had to punch every one, you know, across, you know, maybe 1100 transactions at one store, how much is that really slowing down my line? Mm -hmm. um, so we can get to uh, total donut sales. We can get the total gluten-free. We can get the total specialty but we don't in the system understand how many maple versus apple versus, you know, those types of things. Those things are still tracked manually. That forecasting model is still not terribly sophisticated uh, for us. Um, some of it is still feel, a lot of it is, is still number management, um, but we're still doing a lot of things relatively archaically. Sure. Uh, so again, as, as you think about sort of the growth and you're thinking about investing in infrastructure, you're talking about um, managing you know, three different systems, payroll, POS, financial, and there's a lot of manual stuff uh, in, in the reorg or sort of the, 
the new system, the new POS system you're bringing in to tie all these systems together, what question are you going to be able to answer once you've done that that you haven't been able to answer yet? So what is, I guess, what is the gain associated with the pain of changing POS systems? Because they are notorious for having high switch costs. Oh, yeah, you're telling me. Um, <laughs> I think we'll probably walk away from $50,000 of, of, of infrastructure when um, we do change. And they build them so that you can't use them with the next system, right? Yep. Um, it's really, I think, being able to have quicker access to forecasting uh, data uh, and being able to to really slice and dice our, our labor components Um much more quickly having real-time labor focus. So can you talk about why both of those are important? Um, yeah, in our, in our business, um, being able to forecast, you know, having a, a, a handmade artisan product, you know, if we have 80 dozen left over at the end of the day, that your profits are toast. Um, and so, and also, and that's just, it's been one of our big challenges is determining when all of our different donuts have a different lead time to get them from cold dough in the cooler to on the shelf. Um, some are hot glaze, some are cold glaze. We have to wait for them to come to temperature. You know, so those lead times or replenishment triggers um, have been really challenging to, to kind of identify. Um, and it's a one-day product, so we're not selling it the next day. So whatever's not there is, you know, going out as a donation or to Preble or, or you know, somewhere in the community. Um, but that's, that's goodwill, but goodwill is expensive uh, sometimes. Um, so I, I need to be able to forecast quicker. I'd love to be able to put in a couple of the system we're looking at, maybe put a weather overlay over the financial data to understand because all three of our shops behave very differently um, in different types of weather, which is a very interesting thing. Um, Scarborough's just charting to kind of trend out. And we're kind of seeing what happens on a hot day there versus the old port versus uh, our Park Avenue store. Um, and then real-time labor. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if, you know, there's a snowstorm that hits Portland, um, you know, I know – Scarborough is still going to produce. I know parks going to be okay, but I know that, you know, Exchange Street's going to be death, right? So we got to be able to cut that staff. Um, so right now we're kind of looking and measuring and doing manual calculations every hour to see where the revenue is relative to who do you have staffed on labor, who's going to go, who's going to stay. There's an easier you're, way to so get there. your managers there. are doing that on an hourly basis? Hourly basis, yeah. Every day? Every day. Wow. And so that, and that's how we so forecast right donuts now. donuts is, is dropping relative to the overhead oh, that stores. Right. Relative to that, you know, that, that, that you know, what's that nut to crack. labor in real time. In real time. Wow. Now the hard part is, you know, and that's one of the other challenges um, from a production standpoint, um, particularly at our exchange street store, it is teeny tiny, right? You've been in there. It's a matchbox. Yeah. Um, we call it the mosh pit. <laughs> um, in the summertime is nuts, but you know, the kitchen we've continuously robbed space from front of the house to give to the kitchen, you know, on a, you know, to pump 5,000 donuts out of that kitchen on a busy summer Saturday. It's like, it still amazes me that those guys are in there doing that. Um, and so part of our challenge in that space has been, we have to then in, in the overnight and we start maybe 10 o'clock at night during the summer to get started for the next day, you know, the front of the house becomes production space. Um, so we, it's all production space and we tear it all down and it all goes into the back. And, um, so we've revamped and revamped that kitchen, um, so many times, but on a busy day like that, you know, we may do 70 ish percent of our product before the doors open just so that we, everybody can have room to work once the doors open. Um, and so something crazy happens and we get stung, uh, with something that we didn't pay attention to or didn't look at. Um, you know, we may be sitting on two or three or 400 dozen donuts, um, if we don't do our math right. Um, so part of our challenge, and we've gotten better in time at becoming more nimble, uh, and producing more throughout the day, instead of, you know, pushing that inventory into the day and crossing our fingers, hoping all of our 
our crystal ball was right, um, really getting a slightly more sophisticated in terms of, you know, walking that number a little bit further into the day, which is every fall. That's what I talk about. I talk spring and fall are the hardest times to call a number in our business. Um, you know, this week is kind of the first cliff of the season for us. So every fall we tend to have huge overage because everyone's still kind of hung over from producing um, in the summertime. And in the spring, I got to tell everybody, gosh, it's spring again, right? And then, so they sell out early, right? And so it's, um, it's just a constant juggling act for us. Is it, is it that bad to sell out early? And I understand you're missing revenue. It's interesting. But said, when, yeah. uh, when I think about the, the dynamism with which you manage labor costs and the, the, the margin of error you have on eating up your margin on waste, um, I would think that the benefit of systematically underproducing to drive that certainty, yeah, you'll piss off some customers, but you also drive scarcity. Mm -hmm. So they'll be pissed off, but they won't want to admit it that they mm -hmm. want Holy Donut more. Mm -hmm. uh, you obviously thought about this because you're smiling right now. So tell me about it. Yeah, I think um, in the beginning and certainly, you know, we opened up exchange and, and that just, you know, that did so much for our brand, um, having that exposure at that location in the old port. Um, we've been accused on many occasions of manufacturing scarcity. Um but I promise you, we were not that brilliant about thinking about that. Wouldn't it would be just, the only company that does that. Pardon me. You wouldn't be the oh, only. Oh no, company I, that I know does several that. that do it very well. But um, but for us, it was just figuring out how to meet demand. Uh, it was the reality, and and I'm, I was smiling when you were saying that because this year, you know, we kind of I had to put my foot down and just say we're not selling out anymore. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we've been at this for five years. We owe it to our customers to have our act together to make enough donuts. So, you know, when those people drive two or three hours and we're, we're terribly fortunate enough that people do that to come eat one of our donuts, eh, kind of our responsibility to have them there. Um, and so we really, you know, I think they let us off the hook in the beginning. Oh, it's a small, little, ah, they just sell out whenever they sell out. But then as we gain traction and, you know, we get media exposure that we're terribly fortunate to be getting, I think we have an obligation um, to deliver to these people who are making a pilgrimage to come eat our product. And so, one thing, you know, I realized is, but, you know, I wasn't being very clear and, and, and as I, you know, coach my managers on that, I wasn't doing it myself in terms of saying, this is exactly how much product I want you to have by flavor every day at this time. Right. I just said, don't sell out anymore. All right. Well, they needed more direction than that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this year was, was really kind of like that line in the sand with our, our, our stores and our management staff that, you know, it's your responsibility to not sell out of your product. Um, and so let's figure out a way to do that, but I don't want to have overage. Well, we got to figure that out. Right. And so now we're allowed to have a percent of overage. Right. Um, and that with their, within that margin, you're good to go. You have to have, you know, within 5% margin uh, on overage and have at least half of your flavors available to the bell. That's the deal. Sure. So do you, when you look at Holy Donut, when you think about Holy Donut, do you think about it in discrete business lines? Cause you do have wholesale, you know, mm -hmm. whole foods, coffee by design, and I'm sure others, um, you have a special order business they talked about is where you say no almost the most because uh, you just hit capacity and, you know, the holiday rush. Hey, I have my family coming over. I want 14 dozen donuts and exactly these varieties. Like, yeah, we can't do that. Uh, so do you think about it in those three discrete business lines? And if so, um, you know, which what what are the state of each and how do you think about them differently right now? Yeah, well, I think the short answer is yes, I do. Um, the Retail is king for us. I mean, that's just, you know, that that's, tends to be the beast that gets fed first um, are the retail locations. 
Um, one of the biggest, you know, because that's the way it's always been or because that's by intent, uh, a bit of both and the margins are a little healthier, uh, on the retail end. Uh, but as we become more proficient at refining our production methods, you know, those wholesale margins are looking more attractive for sure. Um, more predictable too. No way. More no predictable, you know, all, all of those things play. Um, and then it comes down to, okay, available space and time to manufacture that product. Um, and so that's been, been something that, that Lee and I have discussed a great deal about is having a production facility where those things can come out of. Um, and so we've spent a, a great deal of time talking and planning about that. And that's something that's probably pretty near in our horizon. Um, we say a no way too much to a lot of wholesale business. Um, you know, there are, are store, stores that have 40, 50 locations. They're like, yeah, we want you here. Um, there are opportunities and other areas of Maine that we've had to say no to um, that could be very substantial and be very good for brand reach that we just don't have the facilities and the capacity to do. Um, Does that open up the ability for you to produce, to still remain in your ethos of hand cut, handmade every single day. So there's no carryover. If you had a consolidated production facility, would that open up the ability for you to have pop-up retail stores, which didn't need to have the kitchen space behind them as long as you were really tight on transportation? That's that's a very interesting question, and we've 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 gone and poured over that for well as long as I've been in the business. Yeah. How important is it to have a hot shop versus a cold shop? Um, the the jury is still out a little bit. That's one of the the key questions in our customer survey um, about how important that is that, that you can actually see this product being made here. Um, right now, we believe that to be important. We believe that to be one of our bigger differentiators between our competition. Uh, is having a product that's cooked in store within sight of our customers. Um, you know, there aren't too many of our competitors that have, you know, more than a handful of locations that still do that. Mm -hmm. And if I just put my bean counter hand on, like, yeah, of course we produce them in a facility. Are you nuts? Um, but, the, you know, our concern is how much cachet do we lose in doing that? And so, you know, to this day, we purposely do some things the hard way. Um, uh, you know, because right now we believe that that makes a difference. It doesn't mean we're right. Um, but it just means right now that's where we're hanging our hat. Sure. Um, is that, you know, we, we do this thing by hand and we do them fresh from scratch in every store every day. Uh, yeah, it'd be great to not have to build out a store and earmark 70, 80 grand for hoods and fryers and infrastructure and put all that in a facility where that can be done at a much more efficient rate. Um, but that's one of the questions that I'm very interested to see how that's going to come back from our customer base. Mm -hmm just how important that is to them. Because if you look at our, some of our wholesale customers like Lois or Whole Foods um, or some other place that we do business and they don't care at all about that. And my guess is they sell through. They do. And everyone knows it's a holy donut. Yes. I mean, you go to Whole Foods, I know I'm getting mm -hmm. a holy donut when I go to that rack, I pick a donut. And so that's- Even you know, if it doesn't say holy donut trademark. Right, correct. And so that's, you know, that could very well be something that I and or, or, you know, or Lee are hanging on to unnecessarily. You know, we may be just uh, a little bit, you know, too close to it, you know, personally mm -hmm. to to make an objective decision. So that, that's where, you know, really leaning on some outside opinions and, and really pulling our customers, hopefully in a sophisticated enough way that it yields some data that will help us make a proper decision. So, man, you, you, you keep going where I'm already going to be going. You keep beating me to the punch. Uh, Steve Jobs, very famous for mm -hmm. saying that customers don't know what they want until you give it to them. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about uh, asking your customers and saying, "Look, I hope I hope the customers tell us where to go and give us some good data." 
Um, there's lots of literature about um, how you write and the wording that you use for surveys can impact customer results. I mean, we are, uh, economics would say we are uh, rational automatons, but the reality is quite different. So how do you juxtapose that saying, I want my customers to tell me because I'm going to believe them. They're the soul of my business to the understanding that, you know, maybe they're not actually leading you to the right place. Yeah. No, maybe not saying what they think they're saying. In the end, you know, the, their word's not going to be gospel in our eyes. Um, and so we took a, a fair amount of time and sought guidance um, and, and had a company formally walk us through the survey process so that we are not, you know, unintentionally leading them down a path and, you know, kind of cooking our own books of opinion, so to speak. Um, and so that's, you know, that will that will play a role, right? I mean, you know, our own data, our customer data, and our gut feel, there's a, a triad there of where that decision needs to be made. Um, you know, do, do you, you know, I, I read the same thing with Steve Jobs and that, that's totally true. Um, and so you kind of have to wade through those comments uh, a bit and, and through those survey uh, results um, at the end to hopefully we'll get a little bit closer uh, to having more. And for me, it's about just having the confidence in your decision, right? And if you fail, you fail fast. Right, there's nothing that you can't unplug and undo if you if you step in it and make a wrong decision. Um, but go, you know, eventually, you know, you can only collect so much data. You got to make a decision. Sure. So um, how does how does that manifest itself when you're talking about uh, consolidating production? You know, fail fast, great. Uh, but to some extent, you know, you make that decision. You can't necessarily fail fast. You've signed a lease, and you know, you kind of plugged into it. And so this is another conversation we have a lot. Is there's some cases where there's very easy test cases. You can do mini tests and you test it and then you do it and it's great and you do more of it. Mm -hmm. In other cases, the initial test case is, is so big that you kind of have to be more right, more certain at least, or mm -hmm. at least more pot committed. You can't mm -hmm. fail as fast. Mm -hmm. so how do you think about that? I mean, those are big, weighty decisions. Um, you know, at the end of the day, as, we, as, you know, as you talk about, maybe we create a cold shop, right? I mean, I'm always going to look at what my outs are, right? And we opened up Scarborough. Right. That was a, a stretch for our little company, both, you know, infrastructure wise, financial, um, and taking on a big place that might have this presence of being this retail type of, you know, or corporate thing. Um, for me, if I can survive the worst case scenario, then let's go. Um, you know, if you, if you do, you know, if you had your the pets, upside right? scenario is all, is all gravy. Pardon me? If you can survive the downside, then the upside. Yeah. Is all I mean, gravy. at the end of it, I'm like, okay, we can, you know, as, you know, when we decided on Scarborough's, okay. Here's my out. If I sell all this equipment for pennies on the dollar, if I have to pay, you know, years, month worth of rent to get the hell out of here, is that survivable? And will the other two stops still be able to go? Yes. All right, let's go. Um, and so if you can do that, and that's, you know, I mean, a very sophisticated way to look at it, but that, you know, going forward with confidence is everything. Um, if you're doubting it, you're just not going to be fully committed. Um, and so I think finding those situations where you can put yourself in a situation where you have to be fully committed and, burn the boats as they say then it's that works third time i was just about to say burn the boats yeah um so obviously if you have an out mm -hmm. that's not the that's not synonymous with burning the boats mm -hmm. so which is it well i think you know in the for instance when i jumped in with both feet i didn't have an out to come into this business so that was a burn the boat type of a situation yep. where with scarborough it was burn the boats but i got enough trees to build a raft over here right to, to get the hell out of here if, if it doesn't work um I don't think you always have the luxury of outs. Uh, and, but when you do, um, hopefully more often than not, you do have somewhat of an out uh, or you at least believe in, uh, in what your company has to, to give to this new venture. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I want to wrap up the interview with a couple of questions I ask everyone. Uh, and the first one 
is uh, imagine there's a magic pause button in life. You get four months, you can't take a vacation. You have to allocate that time to furthering the Holy Donut in some way. Uh, but you're not, you don't, none of the day-to-day stuff is taking up any of your time. So how do you allocate that, those four months? I'll probably try to spend as much time as I can talking with people who are, are doing what I believe our company is going to be trying to do. Um, if I could take a little tour around the country and, and talk with uh, some of my mentors some people that, that I, I respect a great deal um, and learn a little bit face-to-face um, from some of the great business leaders that, that I admire, I think that would be something I would love to do. Okay. So then the obvious tack on question there is uh, people who have done what you want to do. So what mm. is that? Um, I think scaling a business like ours to a, to a regional level, you know, in New England, I would like to be New England known synonymously with the Holy Donut. Um, we, we've been fortunate to become somewhat iconic in, in, the, in the Southern Maine market. And I believe that we can have that type of presence throughout New England. Um, and I think that's where I ultimately see the potential of our company going. New England runs on Holy Donut. Ooh, no, I'm just ooh. kidding. I'm just kidding. It was right there. <laughs> I, I had to do I it. I served it up. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next one is uh, very similar. Uh, million dollars lands on your doorstep. The only string attached to it is you have to reinvest it back into Holy Donut. How are you mm-hmm. allocating that capital? I'm building a production facility. Where? Um, that's the million dollar question right now. <laughs> um, that is, uh, most likely, uh, just South of Portland. Um, as we look at future dots in the map, um, more of those dots are going to be South of the Portland market. Um, and that would be where I would, uh, put those funds to work. How large is the circle around the production fill, uh, production facility mm-hmm. that would allow you to sort of, when you say more of the dots on the map, you know? How large is that sphere for the production facility? Um, right now, our, our initial assessments are about 90 miles. Wow, hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's quite a bit. That would take you definitely down to Portsmouth mm-hmm. and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're smiling. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, last question, most open-ended. What haven't I asked that I should have? Um, probably how challenging it is to work in a family business. Okay. Um, I think that was one of the things that we've been, we were very fortunate with. Um, one of the, and I think that relationship, you know, for it, it was hard all the way around because, you know, as I, I said earlier, you're always, it's hard to cater to two relationships at once, but with family, you know, we, and we have a very tight family and one of the, I think we were very fortunate in that this will never interrupt our family. Um, easy to say that harder to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's hard to say, well, it's just business, right? It's never just business, right? There's always an element of uh, a personalness and people have egos and then they have, you know, feelings, right? And, we, and it's hard to, to really speak to the business truth and not maybe offend somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but we always had that ability, you know, I used to, some of my most fond memories um, of Alan, my father-in-law who passed a year or so ago, um, him and I used to have knockdown, drag out arguments um, and vehemently disagree, um, but then be able to laugh and have a beer at dinner um, and understand that, that we put it there and we had a, a healthy mutual respect uh, for, for one another. And, and if we all kind of, you know, boil it down in those moments, you can get heated and, and things can get elevated, um, but that just means you're passionate, right? And so there's no, nothing inherently wrong with that um, as long as things don't get to a personal attacking level. It's just, I disagree with you on that point, um, 
maybe vehemently. Um, and that's okay, right? As long as all, we all believe it's for the greater good. Um, so we had that ability to compartmentalize it a little bit. Not saying none of us ever went home with ruffled feathers, because um, we certainly did. Um, but I think we all trusted the genuineness of the other person. You have to allow people to be, to be passionate and to disagree. I think that's how you get to the heart of matters. Uh, I think too frequently, people don't speak their mind, right? And it's just too easy, too smooth sailing. Whenever that goes on for too long, you know, in our business, I was like, all right, somebody's not speaking their mind here. Not all of us are agreeing upon this. And so how do you ignite a little bit of that conflict? And there has to be trust at the core. Sure. If you trust that person, whether it's a friend or a family member, you can give them a little bit of leeway uh, and you can have some heated arguments, um, but then have the discipline to let it go. So I think that is a unique perspective. Uh, not having enough discord, not having enough disagreement is probably an indicator that people aren't speaking their minds. And to your point, a disagreement, especially a vehement one, really is just an, uh, an underpinning of, of people caring. And so if they're not disagreeing, then obviously the corollary is they're not caring enough. And that's a bigger problem. Mm. Uh, and one thing we say is same thing, family comes first. But then second, uh, if you have a problem, it's your, it's your job to bring it up. And if you don't, that's your problem. Mm -hmm. That ceases to become our problem. Um, it, is, it is your imperative, mm. uh, not someone else's. I think it's, it's commendable that, that you sort of sound like you play the role of, hey, if we're all agreeing too much, someone's not speaking their mind and, mm. and we have to draw that out. Otherwise, it's going to fester. And that's well, really it'll gonna, fester that's and gonna it will, blow up. Yeah, it, it does. And it comes from, you know, just experience and having gone through that and myself maybe having held on to things historically in my career. Um, and as we coach our young managers, right? You know, it's you're just you're just yesing here, right? And you know, we all want employees and engaged staff. Um, sometimes if you're really engaged and you're bright and you're confident, there's gonna be conflict there. Um, as long as it's productive conflict. It's not, you know, conflict for the sake of me wanting to be right. It's conflict for, for what's actually best for this company and this organization or that department or that store. Um, if that's your guiding principle, then the conflict is healthy. Yeah. Well, I think that's an awesome thing to wrap up on. Jeff, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Time Small Business Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with a friend. To access show notes and subscribe to our distribution list, be sure to visit us at chenmarkcapital.com slash podcast. That's chenmark, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K, capital.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at chenholdco, C-H-E-N holdco. Last but not least, we'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at podcast at chenmarkcapital.com. Thanks a lot.